good morning. What a great day. What a great time of worship. You guys are amazing. One of these days we're going to get a big bus and we're going to take you on the road and we're just going to wow people with how great our God is. You guys sing so, so well. Well, good morning and welcome to our uh, exegetical expository series called Kingdom Living, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7, better known as The Good Life. The Good Life because it is a life of following Jesus Christ in loving obedience and watching our lives do good things as he makes our hearts good in him. That's why it's the good life. And quite frankly, it is the best life you can live this side of heaven, hands down. And we're going to be talking about that over the next number of weeks and months together. Uh, But today we're going to hone in on the very beginning of this message, the greatest message ever preached by the greatest man who ever lived. And just like any message, there is an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. And so today we're beginning with the introduction to this message called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to look today at the invitation the invitation that Jesus gives to experience the good life. Now that invitation is wrapped up in some words called the Beatitudes. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me today and please do bring your copy of the scriptures. You're going to find this desire to want to underline or highlight or write something in the margins and you can't do that if you don't have it. So let's get in the habit of kind of bringing the scriptures with us and we will use them together. So here we go. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, Jesus Christ said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there are eight blesseds. And then an addendum, which carries on from the last blessed, the blessed of those who are persecuted, Jesus gives this additional explanation in verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And he finishes in verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for great will be your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. With just that reading, and hopefully still ringing in our ears and minds, let's take a minute and pray together, and then we're going to launch into this thing called the Beatitudes, the wonderful invitation Jesus gives for the good life. So if you would bow your head with me, let's go before the king, let's go before the one who spoke these words and had them recorded for us to see today. King Jesus. Thank you that you are the Lord of the universe. And thank you that we can approach uh, the throne of God through you, Jesus, through your sacrifice. You make us perfect in you, thus we can approach the Father. And Lord, I, I just have to say that the words before us today are profound. 
And I pray that you would grant us the ability to appreciate them, to understand them, but even beyond that, to actually apply them in our hearts and our lives today. Help, Jesus. We need you. In your worthy name, and the people of God said, amen. Amen. So this portion of Scripture, actually, let me get beyond this to this portion of Scripture. Yes, there we go. This portion of Scripture is commonly known as the Beatitudes. And I can remember somebody asking me the other day, uh, Matt, he said, what does that even mean? What is Beatitude? Where does that come from? What's that mean? Well, actually, the word Beatitudes is from the Latin translation of the original Greek called the Latin Vulgate. And it translates the word that we have in English as blessed with this word, beatitudo, beatitudo, which means a proclamation of blessing. And so if you have eight beatitudos, you have the beatitudes. And so that's where it gets its name. It comes from the Latin beatitudo. Now, the actual word that is both translated in the Latin with beatitudo and the English blessed actually is the word makarios. Makarios. It's an awesome word. It has the idea to receive a blessing. It has the idea to be fortunate. It has the idea of being given something that you could never hope to earn or deserve. And so you are left overwhelmed. You are blessed. Now, I get to admit, when I was kind of looking at the word uh, makarios, makarios, and I was looking at the meaning, blessing, happy, all that good stuff, something went through my mind. And it was kind of... But I won't go there. Makarios, makarena, why not? Hey, it's kind of similar, but if you want to remember the word blessed, think of the makarena, because it's a joyful thing, it's a good thing, it's a blessed thing, it's a happy thing thing. And so that word is translated in so, so many different ways. Let me see if I can help you to appreciate just what that blessing might feel like. Um, imagine, if you will, you are in a point of, of being destitute. You don't know what's going to happen next. You, you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. The creditors are coming after you. You're in a bad way. Maybe some of you don't have to imagine really hard. I don't know. But if you're in that situation, imagine how you would feel if a knock came to your door and you opened the door and there stood a lawyer. Sinking feeling. But actually what he's there to tell you is this. A long lost uncle that you never knew died and left you his inheritance and it's a fortune. How do you feel? Woohoo! Yeah, oh, that's a good feeling. That's great. I like this. I feel very fortunate. I feel blessed because I never saw it coming. That's Macarios. That's what it means to be blessed. It is that overwhelming good feeling when somebody does something that you just are taken off guard by. Wow, that's cool, that's awesome. Now let me see if I can help some of <clears throat> other folks here uh, appreciate the beauty behind this feeling, this word. Um, perhaps we have a few people with us this morning that are long-suffering Redskins fans. Maybe, maybe not, but I think there's probably a good chance. Can you imagine how you would feel at the end of this coming year's football season if in Super Bowl 51, the Washington Redskins hoisted the Vince Lombardi Trophy? And you would say, okay, may the Patriots win then. <laughs> no, 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 no. 
But it's the idea, it's like, oh, wow, awesome, high five, excitement. We will talk about this until the day we die, kind of a thing. You know, that's how it is. We get really excited about these things because we, we had nothing to do with it, but we get the blessing of it. That's kind of this word, makarios. It's happy, it's joyful, it's blessed. It's, it's the recipient of something that you could never earn or deserve, so you are overwhelmed by the beauty and goodness of it. Now, let's take it back into the first century for a minute. I want you to appreciate a little bit of the way the people in Jesus' day felt. You see, in Jesus' day, let's say a great king came on the scene. Let's say that this king was unlike any king that they had ever seen or heard of. This king evidenced such power in his ability to touch and to heal. He worked miraculous happenings all over the place. He was an amazing king, and everybody expected somebody like that to immediately run towards the palace where he would hang out with the Herods, you know? Or he would run over to the temple, and there's where he would hang out with all the religious leaders because these were the big guys. These were the important people. These were the people who mattered in Israel. But imagine how you would feel if instead of hanging out in the temple or at the palace, this great king were to walk through dusty towns. And, and he would come down to where the little people lived, the nobodies lived, you know, uh, nowhere Israel. Imagine how you would feel if this great king were to come into your village and he would start to walk through your village. You would feel so overwhelmed by his majesty and who he is that you would be humbled by him. And you would put your head down because you, you feel a sense of shame because you're a sinner. And, 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 and you're nobody, and, and, and there's nothing great about you, and he is so great. And you see the shadow of him walk by when all of a sudden it stops. And you see the shadow grow as he makes his way towards you. And then you see his, his feet and his robes, and you feel this hand come down under your chin and lift up your shame-filled face. And he looks you right in the eye with such compassion and such love that he puts his arms around you and he holds you close. And he doesn't just want to let you be in his presence, but his desire is to include you in his family. How do you feel? Whoa. That feeling is Makarios. Blessed, who am I to be in the presence of one so great? You see, Jesus was the promised Messiah of Israel. He is the Davidic king who has come on the scene. He worked rem remarkable powers that showed the kingdom to come, powers to heal sickness and to help people who are hurting. And so this great king came on the scene, and they were like, Whoa! And he speaks blessing over the crowd. He speaks makarios over the crowd. He extends to them the most unimaginable opportunity you can imagine. This is who this one is. He is the king of the Jews. He is Jesus. So Makarios has this idea of, of favor and joy and happiness. It, it is this sense 
that, that I have been giving something I could never earn or deserve. It is, if you will, the embarrassment of riches. Who am I? Who am I? Now the question is this. He speaks these very powerful words over the crowd. But who is going to receive the blessing? Who is going to be the recipient of such a gift of grace? Because it's not simply everyone he's talking to. There is a proper response to what he says. We're going to talk about that response right now. You see, makarios is awesome. Great, great word. Blessed, 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 blessed. Eight times here. But a lot of people look at this passage and say, you can experience the blessing of God if you are, what? Poor in spirit, which many people take to mean if you are humble, right? you poor in spirit, obviously you would be humble. And if, if you are somebody who mourns, which obviously must mean that you are so overwrought by your sin and in repentance and tears, you turn to him. Uh, and then if you are meek, which obviously means that you are humble. No, wait a minute. The first one was supposed to be humble. I'm not sure I know what meek is supposed to mean. You see, what people tend to do with this portion of Scripture is people tend to spiritualize all of this. They look at these qualities of being poor in spirit, and they think it's, it's humility and mourning. They think, it's well, it must be repentance and meekness. I don't remember what that is, but it must be something different than humble because you can't have exactly the same thing. Then hunger and thirsting for righteousness must be you're doggedly after God. Uh, merciful means, uh, I think that means you're good with people, and then pure in heart and peacemakers, and then persecute. What happens with this portion of Scripture is that a lot of people have made it say something that it doesn't say. A lot of people have gotten very creative in kind of coming up with this cool way of looking at it. But the challenge is this. Uh, the goal of any good expositor, an expositor is somebody, somebody who merely exposes the text. And an expositor is somebody whose goal is to understand what was the author's intent and what was it that the original hearers would have understood. And so if we're not careful, we can overanalyze something. We can over-exegete something to the point where if we are not careful, we are so dissecting and getting down and breaking it down and going to the point we can actually end up performing an autopsy on something that we have effectively killed. The Word of God is alive. And the goal is not that we so overthink it and dissect it to the point where it's lost its power, but rather we simply understand what Jesus meant. And then from that, we communicate what he meant. And so in this section, people have gotten terribly creative. Uh, I mean, if you were to go to Amazon, you would go to Amazon and type in simply Beatitude Books. Beatitude Books. You would discover that it will get 3,211 hits. Books and commentaries written on the Beatitudes. Think about that. 3,211 different people writing on this topic, which is only 10 verses long in about 130 words. And then, some of these books are really, really, really thick. Thomas Watson uh, is actually a modern-day writer who wrote a book called Beatitudes, an exposition of Matthew 5, 1 to 12. 
It's 450 pages long. I mean, stop and think about that. That is basically 45 pages per verse, and it works out to a little over three and a half pages per word. Really? Is that really what Jesus said? And is that really how the people would have understood it in his day? Uh, you know, other people likewise write at length and uh, quite frankly, ad nauseum. Um, let me throw out one more name and I love this guy. I love this guy, I have the greatest respect for him, but I just think some, sometimes he doesn't always nail it. Uh, John MacArthur, sorry, I, I, I'm not trying to harm that name. But listen, he wrote a book called The Only Way to Happiness, 256 pages. That's 25 pages per verse or two pages per, wor per word. You can understand something here. Jesus spoke into an oral culture. He didn't hand out outlines and then Bible study notes to go deeper. So he didn't like say this in some kind of spiritualized manner, expecting you to go home and study up and then come back and say, poor in spirit means humble, Jesus. Yeah, right? No. You see, what I'm trying to say is sometimes we so overlook things or look into things so deeply that we miss the point. And I'm afraid that happens too often in this uh, particular place called the Beatitudes. Uh, somebody has looked at these and, and they actually refer to them as the be happy attitudes. That sounds cute, doesn't it? Is that really what it is? Are these really attitudes, be happy attitudes? I don't think so. Uh, somebody else looks at this and they actually called them the eight steps to, to happiness. So these are to be taken as steps. Somebody else called it the ladder of beatitudes. So you're supposed to like climb these to get closer to God. You see, we do all sorts of interesting things. Some people even look at this and go, well, actually, it's kind of a reflection of the Mosaic law. The first four actually are our relationship to God, and the other four are our relationship to man. That's creative, very clever. But is that really what Jesus meant? Is that how the people would have taken it? I don't think so. I think Jesus had a very specific meaning in the words that he spoke to the people that were listening. Let me share with you how I believe Jesus intended these words to be understood or taken, how I believe the first century uh, folks sitting there listening to him would have understood it. So, let me assume the position of a rabbi it says in Matthew chapter uh, 5 and verse 1, and seeing the crowds, look at the crowd, seeing the crowds, it says that he, Jesus, went up onto a mountain. This was a natural amphitheater. He would have been uh, seated high, and then the people would have been down, and then the water, the body of water, the Sea of Galilee was down there. So it was a natural way to speak and project your voice. It says, and when he had sat down, this is the position of authority for a rabbi. When they sat down, you knew they were going to say something that you needed to hear, and they, he was about to speak. And so it says his disciples came to him. Now imagine this scenario. Here's Jesus, kind of exalted, sitting down in the position of authority. His immediate disciples, those who he had just called and those who were now following him, those who had already made the decision that all was in with Jesus, they, they were kind of here. And just beyond them were the people, the crowd, the masses. And so I can well see Jesus taking his hands and doing this as he's looking out over all the people. And I believe this is what he said and they heard. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
And what the people in the audience that day would have heard is this. Blessed are those who are broken and beaten down by life and the consequences of your choices. Broken people, poor in spirit. This is not some kind of spiritualized humility. These are people who are hurting. They are broken, poor in spirit. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. This is not some kind of repentance. This is weeping over the loss of a loved one or the loss of a dream. These people were hurting. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. This is those bashful introverts who are fearful and afraid of life. Blessed are you. Makarios are you. The favor of God is extended to you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's speaking to those who had a longing for good and beauty in a terribly broken and fallen world. What I want you to see from these words from Jesus is these are not, you know, attitudes that we are to ascribe to. These are the reality of the people standing in front of him. They are hurt, broken, wounded people. And Jesus is calling them blessed. Why? Well, I want you to know this. He is not calling being broken a blessing. He is not calling the loss of a loved one a blessing. He is not calling your, your, your uh, hopelessly introverted life where you're afraid to interact with people a blessing. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is this. Blessed are you because the condition of life you are in has prepared you to embrace me. That's what he's saying. They have so lost hope, they have so fallen away from any chance of any kind of personal redemption that they've now come to Jesus who shows them the power of God and they're now coming with a desire to know him, to follow him, and to give them their complete allegiance and affections. Blessed are you because your life is in such a way that you can cast all your trust in me. That's what Jesus is saying. The conditions themselves are not a blessing. The blessing is that they can put their complete trust in Jesus Christ who is the blessed one. Christ is the blessing, not these attitudes. So it is Christ that they're to embrace. It is Christ that they're going to give themselves fully over to. It is Christ that they are ultimately going to turn away from their lives and embrace. And when you embrace Christ, you get the kingdom of heaven. When you embrace Christ, you will be comforted by him. When you embrace Christ, you shall inherit the earth. When you embrace Christ, he is the one who will satisfy you. When you embrace Christ, you shall receive mercy. When you embrace Christ, you will see God. When you embrace Christ, you shall be called the sons of God. So this is what he's saying. These are not some kind of spiritual ladder or, or attitudes that we are to ascribe for. He's speaking to real people broken, hurting people, masses of people who have no hope. And they have come to Jesus Christ willing to renounce their past and embrace Jesus Christ with the highest allegiance and the highest affection that they can do. And because of that, they are about to become his followers. That's what Jesus is saying in this beginning portion. That's what he's hitting home at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Because apart from Christ, you can't do it. 
And so he's basically giving an invitation to put full trust in him. You say, Pastor Bill, that sounds really cool. But how do we know you're not going to write a 450-page book and put it on Amazon? How do we know what you're saying is even accurate? How do we know what you're saying is true? Well, um, you'll have to take my word for it. No, I'm just kidding. Let's, let's continue to search the scriptures. Don't ever take my word for something. Search the scriptures. You see, this is not the only time Jesus spoke like this. Uh, we have this thing called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, but we also have something called the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. And so this is a message that Jesus would have given on various occasions. This was a, a common speech that he would give. And so we not only have it here, but we also have it in an abbreviated form over in Luke chapter 6. And so here, notice the blesseds. And it says, all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came from him, and he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and then he said this, Makarios, blessed, uh, happy, uh, content, favored of God, are you who are what? Not poor in spirit? No, they're in poverty. They are in poverty. And then he goes, blessed are you who are? For, for righteousness? No, their bellies hurt. They're starving. Blessed are you who? You mean mourning over my sins? No. Somebody near to you, dear to you, you love so deeply, is dead, is gone. Your life is, is in turmoil. So you see here, we don't have any question. We don't try to spiritualize this one because it's too obvious that it shouldn't be. But the reality is this. So Jesus is making it very plain that these conditions in and of themselves, being poor is not a good thing. That's not blessed. Being hungry is not blessed. Uh, weeping is not blessed. What is blessed is that this condition of life has prepared people to be able to fully renounce their lives and follow Jesus with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, and all of their strength. So they are blessed in that they are in the position to become Jesus' disciples. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Thank you. I need a little input here. I can't see everybody, but I need some input. But you see, Luke doesn't end it there. You see, Luke doesn't just include the blesseds, but Luke actually goes another step, and he includes something called the woes. And so he goes on to say this, but woe to you who are what? Yeah. Woe to you who are full. Woe to you who laugh. Woe to all, woe are you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. What's this? This is the other side of the issue. You see, when your life is broken and you have no resources, you have no ability to hope in anything else other than Jesus, ultimately you are in the perfect position to embrace Jesus. That's a blessing, a blessed place because he's the blessed one. But you can also be in a position where you are rich and you are fat and you are happy. That's what it says. Where guess what? Yeah, I don't think I need him. Yeah, I don't think I'm interested in him. Now, I want you to notice again, just as being poor is not a blessing, I want you to know being rich is not a woe. He's not condemning wealth. He's not condemning uh, being full or laughing. He's not condemning those things. But what has happened is these people are rich and full and laughing, and everybody thinks they're great. 
So they are not in a position to renounce their life and embrace Jesus and walk as his disciple. And so their condition is actually a condemnation. Blessed are you when all you have is Jesus. Woe are you when you have everything but Jesus. This is where this goes. And so we have this happening. I want, to, I want to show you something that's happening that was profound in that culture. We'll talk a little bit more about it in two more weeks. But, but what we have here is the social strata of Jesus' day. We have those who are the powerful, the rich, the full, those who are, are party animals, are having a great laugh, and everybody speaks well of you. What we have in, in Israel at the top of the social structure were the wealthy, smart, intelligent, capable, powerful people. These are the people who are in the temple and in, the, in, in all the high society and all of this. The very area that everybody thought the great king would rush to to get affirmed. But what Jesus is saying is, woe to them. But rather, when you are actually on the bottom of this structure... Blessed are the poor, the hungry, those who are broken. And when people basically condemn you and exclude you, you're actually blessed because you're in the position to embrace Christ. So what Jesus does is this. This is the social structure. He does this. The people who are supposed to be blessed of God are actually under a curse, and those who are supposed to be cursed are actually under the blessing. So Jesus is actually changing everybody's idea of what it means to be in a good place. Oh my gosh, I could run down this avenue a long way, even in our country. It is the powerful, it is the mighty, it is the politician, it is the brokers, it is the money people. Those are the ones everybody looks up to. And they have no need of Jesus. And yet, could it be? that maybe even those at the bottom of society who have discovered that there's nothing in life worth living for other than Jesus, could it be that they're truly the ones who are blessed? I'm not going to go there. Not today. Not right now. But I want you to see what Jesus is saying at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He is calling people to renounce their past and embrace Christ with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their mind, with all of their strength, that their total allegiance would be with Jesus. And think about it, uh, in light of these two groupings, the woes and the blesseds, think about how much easier it is to renounce poverty and not power. Think about how much easier it is to renounce brokenness and not riches. How much easier it is to renounce an empty, hunger-filled life than to give up parties and laughter. See, this is what Jesus is saying. The conditions themselves are not the blessing or the curse. The thing is, is these conditions of people's lives actually position them to either embrace Christ or to not. That's the point Jesus is making. Now, I want to uh, just show you um, from Paul's writings, this has always been the way. Those who are down and out, poor and broken, have been those who have responded to the message of the gospel, and those who have been rich and powerful and have means have often not. Let me show you. It comes from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, verses 26 through 31. 
He says this, consider your calling, brothers. He's speaking to the church in Corinth. For many of you, uh, for not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Yeah, you ain't much. Kind of the off-scouring, the person that lives in the margins, that's who you are. Remember that? It says not many were powerful. It also says not many were of noble birth. Now notice it doesn't say not any. There is always a few who will, from these positions of authority and power and noble birth, be followers of Jesus. There always will be. I mean, you look at the Bible, and you've got this guy called uh, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he great. He sings and does the Macarena all during a message. What's wrong with that? But the idea is little Zacchaeus invited Jesus into his house, and when Jesus walked in, Zacchaeus said, listen, if I have ever defrauded anyone, I'm going to pay them fourfold. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. Why? Because a man who lived for money, where his allegiance was in money and his love was in money, was willing to put money aside to embrace Jesus. That's what Zacchaeus did. He was a wealthy man, but he understood what it meant to follow Jesus. He put money aside and was willing to follow him. We also have Joseph of Arimathea, who had his family tomb that he allowed Jesus to get in and and be used. Uh, Jesus didn't need it long, uh, but he borrowed it for about three days, and then he rose from the dead. Uh, And then we also have uh, Nicodemus, who was one of the elites in Israel. So it's, it's not that there aren't any who are willing to forsake and embrace Christ. There's just not many. In fact, uh, the Queen of England, uh, Queen Victoria, back in her day, one time said that she was saved by an M. Think about that. It says, not many were of noble birth. It didn't say not any were of noble birth. It said not many. And so she said, I was saved by an M because I have embraced Christ with my life. And, And so what I want you to see is it's not that no one from this upper strata can embrace Christ. It's just really hard because Christ calls for a renouncing of everything to embrace him exclusively. That's what he does. So um, let me move beyond this. Oh, it goes on to say this. Uh, He actually describes the rest of us here. Notice, those who are foolish in this world, those who are weak in this world, those who are despised in this world. I don't know about you, but that pretty well sums me up pretty well. Uh, I qualify as the weak, despised, and so on. Uh, But those are the people who often come to Christ because they have nothing else. But they have Christ, so they have everything. Okay, I'm going to go to one more place where there is this additional uh, plea. Uh, It is an invitation not unlike Matthew chapter 5. It is an invitation that Jesus gives, and it's very familiar, isn't it? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How many think that sounds good? I will give you rest. We are a burnout society, aren't we? We need rest. Uh, My son got off work at Applebee's at uh, 12.30 in the morning, and I got him up extra early to bring him in here to work sound. So some of us are running on less rest than others, Um, but I appreciate that. Thank you, Leish. Thank you everybody who does sound ministry and all the ministries here people come in here dog tired because of life but they're willing to serve and i so appreciate that but jesus said this come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest but notice what he says take my yoke upon you this is an important phrase and it fits the context of jesus's day often we don't go there but this is important it was not uncommon for a master rabbi 
to have many men vying for the opportunity to be the disciple of such an auspicious person. So many men would come seeking the rabbi, the master rabbi, to, to, if you will, affirm them as their disciples. The words they wanted to hear from the rabbi were these words, take my yoke upon you, which meant I am going to be yoked to you and I will be your rabbi and you will be my disciple. When that happened, it was like, woohoo, I made it. The words they never wanted to hear were these, go ply your trade. Because that meant you're not worthy. I'm sorry, you didn't make the cut. Go home, learn from daddy, mommy, the family business, and God bless. So what Jesus is saying here is, Come to me and take my yoke upon you, which is, I'm going to make you my disciple. But that means something. It means to learn of him. He says, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We often misinterpret that. In light of the Pharisees who added more and more regulations and rules to the the giving of God's word, uh, Jesus said, I don't do that. It's not all the stuff you have to do to get right with God. It's me. Come to me and I will make you right with God. That's the light burden. So, what does take my yoke upon you mean? I love this. This comes from the Jewish roots of Christianity. Take my yoke. For those who come to Jesus, it meant that they were willing to leave their fathers and their mothers and follow him closely. The idea is an exclusivity of affection. The rabbi actually took a position above their father and their mother in their lives. Jesus' Talmudim, which is uh, Hebrew for disciples, would take upon themselves his yoke, and they would learn of him and act like him. You know, I feel like I have to say something here. A yoke, do you know what a yoke is? It's not the thing in an egg, okay? A yoke is something that you actually put two beasts of burden together. It's a piece of wood that locks around the necks of the animals. Okay, there, I just feel like I had to say that. Uh, They would learn of him and act like him. His interpretation of Scripture would become their interpretation, having all others rejected. Every detail of Jesus' life was to be copied, including his walk, talk, and mannerisms. It meant total what? Yeah, that's what it means to come to Jesus. That's what it means to, to find rest in Jesus. It means that you're willing to put away the rest of your life, to renounce your life and be connected to Jesus as your rabbi and your, you are his disciple. So that's the meaning here. And then uh, one more thing that they said here that I thought was good. The English word disciple really fails to convey the real richness of the relationship between a rabbi and his Talmudim. It was one of trust in every area of life, and its goal was to make the Talmud like his rabbi in knowledge, wisdom, and ethical living. Are you glad we don't live in the first century? Are you glad that Jesus doesn't like come along and say, take up your cross and follow me? Are you glad that Rabbi Jesus today doesn't say that you must renounce everything in order to be my disciple? Aren't you glad we don't live in the first century? Think about that. And then listen to these words, which I found quite probing.
My name is David Platt, and I want to share with you just a little bit about uh, a book that God gave me the opportunity to write by His grace. Think about what it means to follow Jesus. Put yourself in the shoes of a first century follower in a crowd that is following after Jesus, and all of a sudden he turns around and he says to you, if you're going to come after me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, an instrument of torture, and follow me. He says things like, if you're going to come after me, you need to hate your mother and father, wife and children, brother and sister. He says things like, anyone who comes after me must give up everything he has. Even one guy who comes up wanted to follow Jesus, eager to follow Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then you can come follow me. And we, we put ourselves in the shoes of these first century people, and we start to think, well, how do we respond? Would we really follow after Jesus? And this is where we come face to face with the frightening reality. And that reality is that in the 21st century, Jesus says the exact same things to us. He tells us that to follow him means giving him our affection and our love in a way that makes our closest relationships in this world look like hate in comparison. And he does tell us to give up everything we have to follow him. It is possible that he could say in any single one of our lives, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then come follow me. Now, we don't think like this. We, say, we look at passages like these where Jesus says words like this, and we say, well, what Jesus really meant was, and this is where we need to be really careful, because at this point, we're starting to redefine Christianity according to our preferences and what is comfortable for us. We take the Jesus of the Bible and we twist him into a Jesus that we're a little more comfortable with, a nice middle-class American Christian Jesus who looks like us, who thinks like us, who talks like us, who doesn't call us to go to dangerous extremes. He wants us to avoid danger altogether. And we take the Jesus of the Bible and he begins to look a lot like us. And the danger here is that when Jesus is being twisted into our image, and when we gather together as Christians in our churches and we sing and we lift up our hands to Jesus, the reality is we're not actually worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we're worshiping ourselves. And so the point of this book is to dive into who Jesus really is in Scripture and what the gospel really is, to think about what it means to follow after him in a world where so many are without Christ, in a world where so many are, are starving without basic needs. Following after Christ looks radically different than sometimes what we think of in terms of Christianity. And Christ is more satisfying than anything or everything this world has to put together. And what we find is in following him for who he is, we realize that we were created for something much greater than a nice middle-class Christian spent on the American dream. Our lives were created to count for his glory among all peoples, and this is where life is truly found. Very sobering words, very humbling words, but the original call of Jesus has never changed to forsake all others for him, to give up our lives to him. And it's by grace, it's by his sovereign goodness that that's even available. And so as we make our way into this thing called the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things we're really going to have to grapple with is who controls our lives. We're going to have to, if we want to see success in this series and see life transformation in our hearts and lives, we're going to have to get to that place where Jesus Christ is the center of our lives. 
where he is the one who is the focal point of our faith, where he is the one who determines our priorities, where he is the one who helps us to know what health really means. He's the one that's going to inform marriage and parenting and relationships to others, our finances, our service and, and, and leadership. You see, so long as we're in charge of all of that, and Christ isn't, there is no way that you are ever going to come out of the Sermon on the Mount with anything more than just anxiety. He has to be the fixture of your heart. He needs to be the one that you give primary allegiance to because we're going to follow him in these days to come. And he is going to lead us into some very uncomfortable territory. Uh, this past week, uh, Courtney put uh, up on our Facebook account these words by uh, Dean Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he said this, I would rather make bricks without straw than try to live the Sermon on the Mount in my own strength. So true. So true. So Jesus begins this remarkable message with an invitation. And the invitation is makarios. Blessed, favored of God are you. You would have the embarrassment of riches if you can but come to Christ in complete trust, being willing to renounce any and all of your former life, especially your sins, and you will find in him everything, everything you want. You know what? The great king almost walked by. But today, through his word, he has stopped in front of you. And he has taken his nail-scarred hands, and he has reached down, and he has cupped your face. And with deep love and compassion, he looks in your eyes. And he says, I want to not just let you be in my presence, but I want you to be part of my family forever. But you need to renounce your former life to enjoy all that I have to give to you. Think about it. We're ending this morning with you walking out of here weighing the cost of discipleship, weighing what it means to wholeheartedly follow Jesus. I want this to resonate in your heart and mind this week. I would love for you to carry on a dialogue with the Lord. Listen to his words, and then I will pray, and we will be done. Luke 14. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and he's not able to finish it, uh, all will see it and begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build, but he wasn't able to finish. Jesus goes on to say, what king is going to go and encounter another king in war without first sitting down and deliberating whether or not he is able with 10,000 to meet him who is coming against him with 20,000? And if not, uh, while they are still a great ways away, will he not send a delegation and ask for terms of peace? 
So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all cannot be my disciple. Wow. Wow. Think about it. This week, just think about it. Wrestle with it. Count the cost. Weigh it. Be challenged by it. And think about your life. Is Jesus Lord of all? If he's not, then he's not Lord at all. Let's pray. Father, these are uh, profound words at the beginning of this profound message. But you are merely drawing our hearts closer to yourself as we wrestle with these things. And I pray, Father, that we will find in Jesus Christ the blessing, that he is the treasure, that he is the pearl of great price, and no cost to ourselves will matter because he is the great treasure of our lives. Lord, I pray as, as folks wrestle this week with what it means to follow you closely and to come under your yoke, Help us to wrestle well by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And may we come out the other side ready to follow Jesus no matter what he says. In Jesus' name, Father, I pray these things. And the people of God said, amen. God bless you. We will see you next week.